Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. When I was seven years old, I remember uh, I was at the florist uh, with my family. Uh, my parents at the time uh, were trying to buy some new flowers for the backyard because they had three boys and those flowers had been regularly destroyed. But this time they were trying uh, to get a whole variety of flowers uh, that they could put out the back in such a way that us boys would be forced to play football and cricket in the front yard and not the backyard. Because as I said, they'd been sick of the flowers being destroyed, the balls going over the neighbour's fence, the windows being broken from all of these different activities. But when you're seven years of age and your brothers are four and three, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the florist is the closest thing to a jungle you can go to. You know, like all the plants are really big. There's leaves everywhere. It's all sorted. There's all these different paths and like you can get lost in this place. This florist was in Ballarat and it was actually quite a large florist. So it was a full adventure. And us boys, we were obviously adventuring through the florist. And we were playing a mixture of tag and just like pretending like, what's the movie? It was The Road to El Dorado. You know, like there's this scene where he's like cutting his way through the maze and we're like, yeah, that's us. We're just cutting our way through this florist. And it was so much fun. We were just loving our time there. And I was running around and I was uh, following my middle brother, Sam. And at one point we're running around and Sam just stops. And he looks down and he says, I see your money's. Because I think that's what you say at four. I don't know what kids say, but he just says, I see, I see money. And I quickly come up next to him and realise that it's a $2 coin. Now, back when I was seven years old, for those younger people in the room, $2 could go a long way. It doesn't get very far today, but $2 could go a long way. I remember seeing this $2 coin and instantly thinking of all the Coke bottle lollies I could buy or the sour strap lollies I could buy, the 20 cent lolly bags, or if I really wanted to upgrade, the 50 cent lolly bags. Do you guys remember like 20 cent, 50 cent lolly bags? Yeah? Man, those kids these days, they, I guess they don't even exist, do they? It's like a $2 lolly bag probably. But like, I remember thinking of all of these incredible things that I could get with $2. And in that moment, I knew what I had to do. So as Sam bent down to pick up the $2 coin off the ground, me, his three-year-old brother, pushed him over. Yeah, like pushed him straight over. He fell on his face, hands on the ground, started crying, and I picked up the $2 coin. Mine, I knew it. I now had the $2 coin. Dad, obviously hearing Sam screaming and crying in the florist, came over to see what happened. He turned to me and he said, Ben, what happened? I said to him, Sam was just walking and tripped over and fell on the ground and I found $2 as I went to go and help him. (laughs) Now, I don't know how Dad knew because he wasn't there, but he knew that I hadn't found that $2 on the ground when I was going over to help Sam get up from tripping over on the ground. Now, it may have helped that Sam told Dad that I pushed him over and stole the $2 coin. And he's lucky that at the time I was seven and didn't know the catchphrase, snitches get stitches, but um, (laughs) he was in trouble uh, on my front. But let's be real, I was the one 
who was really in trouble. But wasn't it interesting that at seven years old, I knew what I had to do to get what I wanted. And in that moment, I wanted a $2 coin and everything that came with it. I needed it. I had to have it. So much so that I was willing to push over my four-year-old brother without hesitation so that I could get a $2 coin. And it makes me wonder, how often am I willing to do whatever it takes to get what I think I need? Because for me, I've recognised that I feel like I live in a world that tells me that I need so many things. Research suggests that each adult in the Western world will see somewhere around 4,000 advertisements in a single day. 4,000 ads in a single day, whether that be on social media, whether that be on billboards, whether that be on TV, the radio, if anyone listens to that anymore, newspapers, if anyone reads those anymore, emails, mail, again, if you get any, stickers on cars, it's everywhere. And this comes together to be around 1.5 million advertisements that you will see in a calendar year. But the reason this is so difficult and and I think is so uh, formative on us is because what does every ad try and make you do? It makes you realise or it tries to make you realise that you need something. You know, has anyone uh, noticed that the new iPhone just came out recently? And this iPhone has three cameras so that you can take a photo badly three different ways at the same time, you know? But... You need to have it. You do, I bet none of you, or maybe some of you actually, some of you young guys probably know exactly what the three cameras do. But I don't know about you, but me using those three cameras is just like using one camera. I'm gonna take my phone, I'm gonna look at it something, I'm gonna press the capture button. That's it. I don't know why I need three cameras, but apparently I need it. Because that moment that I need to capture on photo will be done better with three cameras. Or, you know, those difficult situations that you see on infomercials all the time. You know, you've got one of those uh, vacuums and it's just slightly rounded on the edge. And you just see that woman in the ad just frustratingly can't quite get the corner of her room because of the shape of her vacuum. You know, this vacuum company says, don't worry, we've got the solution for you. We have a perfectly square vacuum. It can reach every single corner of every single room. You will never have dust in your room ever again because you'll be able to get every single corner. This is what you need. Don't even get me started on things like those uh, smart technology things where you like yell out and talk to them because you know their advertisements are ridiculous. It's like, here's me just washing some dishes. My hands are wet and I wanna know what the weather is while I'm still inside. Hey Google, what's the weather? It's 29, great, it's 23 in here with my perfectly air-conditioned house. But for some reason, I need a Google Home. You know, like we function just fine not knowing what the weather is at all times, but right now I need a Google Home. Now we can poke a little bit of fun about all of this advertising, but really we live in a culture that tells us that we consistently need things. We need what's new, we need what's convenient, we need what is gonna make our lives easier. We're consistently told that we have a need. 
And I think it works so effectively because the truth is that all of us know deep down that we are in need of something. But all of these things just leave us deeply unsatisfied. Theologian R.T. Kendall says this, he says, a satisfied stomach is not a satisfied spirit. And when it comes to this topic of need, we tend to treat it like we have an unsatisfied stomach. Maybe if I can get this new thing, maybe if I can just get that new item or this new iPhone, maybe that will bring some sense of satisfaction. But the truth is that for all of us, a dissatisfied spirit will always generate a need for something, for something to try and satisfy our soul because it's our soul that drives our need, not our bodies, not our minds, but our soul. So what do we do with this feeling of need? It's, a, it's an innate human feeling. We feel like we need food when we get hungry. We feel like we need water when we get thirsty. We feel like we need a place to lay our heads down at night so that we can rest. We need these things. That's in, innate, that's human. But what happens? How do we deal with a world that is driving this sense of need to the point that it's just like everything and anything is something that now we need to desire? You know, a new phone, a new pair of shoes, a new car, all of these things we feel like we need to train in, trade in each season. I don't know about you, but I'm getting really excited to get my summer outfits ready because I've just bought all my winter ones and Thomas has bought the exact same ones too. So maybe we'll collaborate on our summer outfits as well. But today we are gonna look at this topic because this is a need, as I said, that's innate, it's human. We're not the first generation or the first time that is struggling with this uh, issue of dealing with our need dealing with our desire for more. And so today we're gonna jump into a parable that Jesus tells that addresses this issue so that we can understand how do we deal with this, but also how do we live in a way uh, that helps us be free uh, from our need. And so we're gonna look at this passage. It's in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. And it's my favourite parable because it's the parable of the rich fool. And I get to say the word fool in church multiple times, which is fantastic. So if you've got your Bibles with you, it's Luke chapter 12, 13 to 21. Open up. It's gonna be on the screen behind us, but uh, let's jump into it. So verse 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, the him being Jesus. Jesus is in this place. He's doing some teaching. There's a whole group of people around him. Someone has gone to Jesus and said this, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I'm just going to quickly pause there. This is important to note. See, this is a man who's asking the question from the position of a younger brother. See, at the time uh, when, you know, the father of the estate died, the oldest son would get the inheritance. Now, I'm the eldest son and I think that's a great idea because I think out of me and my brothers, I'm probably the one most equipped uh, to keep the inheritance for myself and use it for my own benefit. But um, this is exactly the situation that they would have faced, that the oldest son actually had no obligation to divvy out the inheritance amongst the other family members. That actually it was his birthright to receive the inheritance and do with it as he wished. So this youngest brother or younger brother, is standing here with Jesus going, Jesus, I want some of the inheritance. I need some of the inheritance. Because in that time, he would have got some of the inheritance, which would have included land, some sheep, some cattle, a whole bunch of other things that would have increased his standing in the society. And he's obviously experienced the fact that his older brother right now is probably leaning towards keeping it all to himself. And so this young man felt he needed some of the inheritance to gain some sense of extra meaning in his life. 
Watch how Jesus responds to this. Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, this is to the crowd, this is to everyone who's there, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, "Take, oh, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. That does sound good. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And so we can see that this parable is birthed out of a question that this man has asked to Jesus. Because he's asking Jesus to use his power and influence to give him what he felt he needed. And I mean, this seems to be a request to just get something that he needs. He's like, Jesus, my financial situation is difficult. My dad's died. I'd really like a little bit of the inheritance. This is just something that I need to get my life sorted. This is something I just need to get my finances under control to get you know, a little bit of extra influence in the world that I'm living in. But he's just asking for something that he feels that he needs. And we do this all the time. You know, I got married uh, you know, 18 months ago. And for one of those things is that sometimes I just feel that I need my wife to let me get a KO subscription because the AFL finals are on at the moment and no offence to Queensland, but you guys don't get the same level of coverage because apparently you don't care about it and I really do. So I need a KO subscription, apparently, for $25 a month. Please, may I have a KO subscription, my wife? (laughs) Grand finals next Saturday, but I'm sure that'll be on the big screen. But we often ask for these things that we think that we need, but if we really were to ask ourselves, do I really need this? the answer might be different. And this is why it's so important. Jesus responds to this statement, this guy going, I need some of the inheritance by saying, watch out. Be on your guard against all types of greed. An interesting response to a guy who seemed to be making a pretty normal request. But this is why it's so important for us to understand this because Jesus knows our hearts and he knows the heart of this man. And he realises that there's a very fine line between need and greed. A very fine line between need and greed. And in fact, I often think that greed masquerades itself as need. Very often in our life, greed masquerades itself as need. I mean, you've probably all heard similar things about uh, just this desire for need in kids' lives. Like parents, you might have heard this if you've got teenagers, they might say to you, mum and dad, I need to be on the Wi-Fi right now or I need more data on my phone plan or I just need another 10 minutes to play this video game before I have to quit. You know, like I need this in my life. I don't necessarily need it, but there is a greed for it. See, greed is defined as a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. is a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than it is needed. And we can see it in this parable, the rich man embodied this. See, he had an abundant harvest, but they decided that his barns that he already had weren't big enough. Now, it's important to note that he was talking about just increasing his storage. 
See, he already had barns. He already had a whole place to store all of his crops and fruit and everything that was left over. In fact, it seems as if they were already full or close to full from last year's harvest. So in this moment, all he's doing is trying to make himself richer. Like if you thought about this question, do you really think that he needs more storage? Do you really think that he needs more of his harvest to be saved up for his own needs? Does he really actually need it? I would argue probably not, but he believed that he needed more. He believed that he needed to store more, that he needed more for his life, that he needed more so that he could rest, eat, drink and be merry. And this is just a subtle look at what greed looks like. And we're going to just dive a little bit more into greed and why we need to understand why Jesus is so I guess so harsh about it. You know, he uses this language, watch out, be on the guard against any form of greed. Jesus is taking greed quite seriously. Like we said, this man just seems to be asking about an inheritance and Jesus is trying to give everyone a lesson about greed. And so we're just gonna look at why greed is so dangerous and why we need to be so uh, aware of it uh, in our lives. And the first thing that we need to understand about greed is this, greed will always generate greed. Greed will just generate more and more greed. It just becomes something that it'll only start small, but it will just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Greed will often generate greed. See, it's only very subtle in this passage, but you notice it because this man is bending the rules so that he can get more. So he's willing to just go, I'm just gonna fudge the numbers. I'm just not gonna quite follow God's plan and purpose for what my harvest should look like so that I can have a little bit more for myself. See, there's this little known verse in Leviticus. You might have read it if you've made your way through Leviticus, if you have, well done to you. But you may have read it and forgotten about it because it doesn't seem like it means much, but it's very important when it comes to this passage. See, in Leviticus 23, verse 22, it says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, which this man is doing, he's reaping the harvest of his land, you shall not reap your field all the way to its edge nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. And I am the Lord your God. See, God had instituted a way for people to realise that they didn't need to keep gathering more, that actually they could be content with what God had given them. He had actually made them have a law that would realise that they had enough that their field had provided enough and that they needed to create room in their life to be generous to others. And yet in this story, there is no mention or consideration at all for this rule. And in fact, it's pretty easy to argue that this man has probably not been doing it for a while because in the four verses where he's talking, he uses the phrase I or my 11 times. This rich man is only interested in what is gonna benefit him himself and I. That's all he's interested in, in this moment. He's not worried about the fact that, oh, I probably should leave the edges for the people who are on the outer of society, but actually I'm gonna take every little inch of this harvest and I'm gonna store it and keep it for myself. See, greed will generate greed. And uh, in this Flora story, my dad recognised that very quickly. So. As you can imagine, after 
he came to the conclusion that Ben had pushed his younger brother over to get $2, my punishment was quite stern. Now, my dad was in the school of hard knocks kind of category, so I remember driving home and dad being like, Ben, you're in a lot of trouble, you know what that means. Now, in my generation, that meant a smacked bottom was coming my way. Now, I knew dad was mad, like really, really mad, so mad that on the drive back home, I was sitting in the car clenching my bottom cheeks so that they could be stronger. That's what I was telling myself so that I would be able to survive the wrath of dad that was coming my way because I knew that I was gonna be grounded. I knew that I was gonna be smacked. I knew that I was in a lot of trouble. And see, this is the thing that dad said to me before he smacked me. He said, Ben, I'm disappointed that you lied to me. But what I'm more disappointed in is the fact that you pushed over your brother to get the money. That is something that we don't stand for in this family. And I tell you what, I still get nervous anytime I see $2 on the ground <laughs> because of how dad uh, sorted me out. But I'm pretty normal otherwise, but just don't drop $2 around me, otherwise I will panic, okay? So just keep that in mind. But seriously, my dad was most concerned with my greed. He knew that I'd lied, but he knew that I'd lied to cover up my greed. He knew that my greed had actually caused me to be willing to push my brother, to sacrifice relationship with my brother for $2. If I was that petty at seven, imagine where I would have been at 27 if he hadn't sorted that out. Because he knew that if he didn't let that happen, uh, if he didn't sort that out in my life, that greed would continue to be a significant influential force in how I lived. He knew the principle that greed generates greed. And you know that because you'll have seen it in uh, other people in your life. You know, there might be that person who, for some reason, every time you go out to a cafe together, you offer to pay for their coffee and they'll gladly accept it. But you know, the next time you go, you're kind of waiting for them to return the favour. They go, you wanna split it? And you're like, sure. <laughs> like, they never seem to be able to pay for your meal. You know, they're just always taking and never quite giving. And you just see it begins to flow out in all of these other ways in their life. It doesn't just become about money, but it becomes that they can only ever really meet you on their time. You know, oh, actually, sorry, I can't come to your event, I've got something on. Oh, actually, yeah, I'm kind of busy then, could you do later, that would suit me better. You know, all of a sudden this greed that maybe just started out as something just financial becomes something that impacts relationally or with their time and greed will generate greed. And as I said earlier, parents, you may have seen this in, in your kids when it comes to things such as data on your phone, video games, money, whatever. But the other thing is that you yourself may have noticed this at some stage in your life or even maybe now. It can just be such a subtle shift, small. Greed doesn't necessarily start out big. We often think of greed as like, you know, Scrooge McDuck or, you know, someone like um, Warren Buffett with $89 million, uh, billion dollars of money. Like that sounds like greed, but it can just be so subtle and so simple. It can be the smallest little shift from, I wonder how I can get better at my job so that I can be better at this for other people, to, I wonder how I can get more money out of my job. Or I wonder you know, how I can get more access to influential people. Or I wonder how I can uh, get more time with my boss, even if it means you know, like ditching some of these other guys. Or I wonder how I can get some more technology to make my home one of those smart homes. You know, all of a sudden, your thoughts just begin to go to how you can accumulate things for you. It can just be such a, Subtle, small shift. But greed only starts out small because it only needs to start out small because greed will generate more greed. It only takes it seeping in one small area of your life for it to grow into others. 
And the reason that it uh, is so dangerous in this is that Jesus knows that once greed takes a hold of our life, it will make us focus solely on this life. See, in the story of the rich man, we see that he realises, man, I've got life good. I've got abundant harvests, I've got big barns, I've got all of this stored up. I am gonna be set for life. Like, think about this guy's, this is like this guy's super. He's got like $10 million in his super. He's sorted, he's all good for the rest of his life. And he decides that he is going to spend the rest of his life doing what? Resting, eating, drinking, and being merry. And all of a sudden in that moment, these things become the very purpose of his life. And all of these things are only focused on this life. You can only eat and drink, I think, in this life. I don't know what's gonna happen in heaven, but these things become purposes and focuses of this life. And see, what happens is then he goes out of his way. He's gonna go and just think about how it impacts his life. He's gonna spend all of his time trying to find great things to eat, go to the greatest restaurants, find the greatest chefs, try the most obscure and rare foods that he can to indulge his palate. That is gonna be his purpose. He's also gonna find whatever it takes for his soul to be merry, whether that's the, um, the, what's the word, where is it? The company of good friends, beautiful women, funny people, maybe all three all at once, but these would now become the purpose of his life because greed has brought his focus to solely this life. Because greed has caused his purpose to be his possessions. Greed has brought his focus to only this life. And in this story, it says, isn't this utterly meaningless? You can eat all you want, you can drink all you want, you can have all you want. But God says in this little passage, he just says this little word, then when you've died, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And it's the thing, focusing on this life ends up making it totally meaningless. Because we can know that we, can take, that we can't take these things with us and yet we often let greed make these things be the very thing that we focus on in this life. And so we can see very clearly why Jesus is giving us a warning about greed. Greed only needs to start small and greed will warp your perspective. Greed will make you only worry about what's happening in your life right now, about the things that you feel that you need right now. And so greed is what we need to be aware of. Greed is something that we need to be warned against, but in true Jesus form, he also invites us into another way of living. It's subtle, but it's just at the end there. So he says, so it will be for those who are not rich towards God. And in that little sentence, he's saying, we can choose to be greedy or we can choose to be rich toward God. Now, the big question is, what does that mean? Because I don't know about you, but I haven't found God's bank account that I can just deposit some money in and say, hey, Jesus, look how much money I've given you. I'm being so generous. But here's kind of how I like to think about it. If greed is the desire to have more than we need and to use it for our own pleasure, then to be rich towards God is to understand what we really need and be generous with the rest. See, famous theologian John Wesley, I think, embodies this better than anyone I've ever heard. See, John Wesley was really famous. He wrote a whole lot of books and became a really influential thinker, particularly in England and a whole variety of other places. But because of this, John Wesley all of a sudden found himself becoming quite wealthy. He'd probably lived a relatively middle-class kind of life, but all of a sudden his book sales started to take off. In one year, John Wesley earned 30 pounds. I know a whole lot, but to put it in perspective, John Wesley realised that actually all he needed to live on in a whole year 
was 28 pounds. And so when he got the 30 pounds and he realised he only needed 28 to live, he gave the other two pounds away. But obviously his fame and um, his uh, influence began to grow and so did the sales of his books. The next year he earned 60 pounds. And, you know, for many of us, we would think, well, that's all right. Like, you know, you could be generous again next year, give away 10 pounds, that's more than the year before. And maybe just maybe, you know, buy a few extra things, save up for a new house, whatever, live off the 50 pounds. But no, John Wesley lived off 28 pounds and gave away the other 32. The next year it was 90, he lived off 28, gave away the rest. The year after that it was 120 and the same principle happened. Eventually, John Wesley was one of the richest men in England because each year he would earn around 1,440 pound. But at the end of his life, John Wesley was living off 30 pound because apparently inflation was still a thing then. John Wesley knew exactly what he really needed. And he knew that it only took him 28 pound to live off that. And so he gave the rest away. John Wesley was living on 1% of his yearly income and giving away the other 99% by the end of his life. Now, I'm not saying here today, figure out exactly how much you need and give the rest away because our world's a little bit more complicated. You know, you've got retirement that you've got to save for, housing prices are ridiculous at the moment. You know, you've got school fees, a hex debt, all of these complicated things that go on in our lives these days. It's a little bit different, but the principle remains the same. Do you know what you really need. Because when you know what you really need, then you can actually fight greed. Because once you know what you really, really need, you can choose to be generous with the rest. Because greed focuses us on this life, but generosity focuses us on this life and the next life. And I mean this in two ways. Firstly, in the spiritual sense that generosity helps us not let possessions own us. Because we go, actually, this is all that I really need. These are the bare essentials that I need in my life and I can be generous with the rest. And you can use that generosity to make investments in things like churches, in people's lives, in uh, organisations that are making a difference to those uh, in need around the world and you know, even in this city and this nation. You can invest in those things and you know that you're investing in the next life because you're being rich towards God because you know what you really need and you're being generous with the rest. But I also think of this phrase of, you know, knowing what you need and focusing on this life and the next life as this sort of attitude towards generosity that looks to invest in others. See, generosity, I believe, is always looking at this question of who or what can I invest in? Because generosity says, I have what I need and I wanna make sure everyone else gets what they need whether that's the people around me, the generation to come um, underneath me, to follow me. I wanna make sure that these people are able to get what they need so that they can thrive the same way that I have, the same way that I am able to because I have what I really need. See, generosity focuses on this life and the next. Generosity will always consider who or what can I invest in so that others may thrive. When I was 22 years old, I was um, living out of home with a couple of housemates. And uh, we were living in an area where there was a few commission homes. Do you guys call them commission homes up here? Places where the government might provide housing for people? Cool, great. Some areas of Victoria don't call it that and it was confusing. I was really worried that that was gonna be a disaster. But commission homes. So we lived on a street and there was a couple of commission homes just across the road from us. 
And uh, some of these commission homes were quite volatile. One in particular uh, was quite difficult. There was a, a mother who lived across the road who had three kids to three different dads. The first one, uh, he you know, uh, fathered the child and moved to Fiji. The second one had passed away. And the third one was currently in prison. And uh, so it was quite a volatile place for these kids and this, this mother. And so she had a lot of friends that came and you know, would help support her and you know, live in that house and uh, help her look after the kids. But often it would be, um, how do I describe it? Quite angry and quite violent, quite loud. So we lived across the road and very often we could hear these arguments taking place. One particular day, uh, there was a really, really big argument, huge argument. Like we could hear it, the windows were closed, but we got every single word of the whole argument. I'm pretty sure she was in the right too, based on what I could hear. But um, they really blew up at each other, this, uh, this mum and one of her friends, and eventually got to the point where, you know, you're hearing doors slamming and uh, the friends run out of the house and the mum's standing out there yelling at her to go away, you know, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> go away, don't come back. I don't like you anymore, all those sort of words, and then goes back inside, slams the door herself, and all of us boys are like, all right, we'll just um, leave that one be. Let's not get too involved in that. Didn't look too violent, didn't, know, didn't think we need to get involved or anything like that, so we just left it. But the next day, I'd gone out to work and I was coming home, and she was sitting outside after picking the kids up from school, and she was just sitting outside in tears crying and we built up a little bit of a connection because her our kids had a couple of boys and they loved us older boys playing footy in the street they'd join in skate with us all that sort of stuff so we'd had a little bit of a relationship with them and I went over to her and said hey are you all right like what's what's going on I heard about the fight well I heard the fight yesterday saw it out the window yesterday I heard about it and she just broke down crying and she said what had happened was they had this fight and in the heat of the fight her friend had stolen her credit cards and gone and burnt $1,200 um, from her accounts. And she was like, all that money that I was planning on using for my kids, you know, school clothes, books, all these other different things that these kids just needed. And uh, I remember being like, man, that's terrible. You know, like what a terrible situation to be in that your friend would go and do something as vindictive as that. Anyway, I go back inside and I'm telling the boys about what happened because obviously... I was giving them the latest goss, you know, just like, hey, here's what's the go. And I remember saying to them, I said, I wish we could do something to help. I don't know, I don't know what we do. Because I was 22, I was a full-time uni student working part-time as a pastor. I wasn't very well off. My other housemates were in similar situations, working full-time, um, no, studying full-time, working part-time. We weren't a, like necessarily a rich place uh, loaded with cash. But one of the boys said to me, said, Ben, why don't we just get some of our friends together, tell them about what's happened. A few of them know the guys from when they've come over and hung out. Maybe we could all chip in and do something together. And I um, thought so that's a really great idea. So we organised this and about 25 different people chipped in and we were able to gather around, you know, five, six hundred dollars. I can't remember the amount now, but we got this amount together. It wasn't everything that she needed, but it was something. It was all that we could give, you know? It was like 20 bucks here, $15 there, $30 from someone else. We just all chipped in as much as we could. And I remember we, you know, put it in an envelope, didn't write our names on it, just put it in the uh, mailbox there and I went off to church. And while I was at church, I don't know why she checked her mailbox at 6 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon, uh, evening, because there's no mail, but she did and she found the envelope in there. And we got a text and she said, hey, I just wanna really thank you guys um, you didn't have to do that, all that sort of stuff. I said, how do you know it was us? You know, doing the whole, like it wasn't us. She said, I know it was you guys because I talked to you about it. And um, I said, hey, it's all great. But I got the opportunity to share with her that we as a church 
those people that we know, that we love her, we care about her, and we want to invest in her and her kids. We want them to know that we actually want to make a difference in their lives too. And the best part about this story though for me, while she was fully um, in awe and like so thankful for that, was the fact that when I went to Macca's after church, because that's what we did in Ballarat, we don't have like any fancy place, so we just have McDonald's. And so we went there after church and I got to tell these 25 people how she responded and how she felt. And they were so pumped. They were so excited that they got to be involved in that. You know, some of them literally gave like five bucks, but they're like, yes, like we got to do this awesome thing and she's so blessed and so thankful. And my reflection was these people enjoyed being able to contribute to the lives of others. But I also think they felt a sense of purposefulness. See, one of the things I've been reflecting on generosity as I've been preparing for this message is this understated thing that we miss so often but actually that generosity has always been our purpose. We've always been purposed to be generous because God is a generous God and we are meant to reflect Him. See, if you look through the the biblical story, we see that God's generosity starts in creation. God was in perfect relationship, Father, Son and Spirit, the three of them. They had everything that they needed together and yet they generously decided to create the universe, to create life, to create us so that we could enjoy and experience life and be in relationship with God. They generously did that. We see that God's generosity reached its crescendo in Christ, that actually Jesus gave up His life for us. He gave us the opportunity to have His righteousness. He gave us the opportunity to be in relationship with Him. He generously gave up His life, paying our debt, knowing that we might not even ask for it to be paid for. He did that because He is so generous. And then we see that God's generosity continues in our lives. See, James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything that we have to be thankful for in our lives is a gift from God, a generous gift from God. God gives good gifts to His kids. God generously cares for us. And see, if that's God's heart, if that's God's character, then I genuinely believe that our purpose is wrapped up in our generosity. Because if you think about it, you can see it in so many different careers. A barista. I never drink coffee, so I don't understand it, but people like it, you know? And let's be real, if you're a barista, you want to give people a really great coffee. It's in the giving that your purpose, is in, your purpose is fulfilled. If you're a real estate agent, you want to give people the opportunity to sell their homes and buy another home. You want to help facilitate that. You want to give them that opportunity, that privilege to, to be able to find a place that they can call home. Your purpose is found in your giving. If you're a teacher, you want to give your students an education. You want to give them the gift of being able to read and do arithmetic and do business management and understand history. You want to give them that gift. Your purpose is found in your giving. I could go on. I could talk about every single career, but I genuinely believe our purpose is always found in our generosity, which is why for each of us, we need to keep an eye out for the signs of greed because greed will warp our perspective and instead we need to cultivate generosity because generosity is where our purpose is. And just as greed will generate greed, I believe generosity generates generosity. Which is why in all of this, I think the best message is that generosity starts with one small step. Often when we think of generosity, we think of these people who are like, you know what, I see the bushfires that are going on and I know there's appeal and I will give $10 million to that cause. And we're like, wow, that's so generous. 
But actually, generosity doesn't have to be that big. For you, generosity could just be this sense of actually going, you know what, I am gonna be generous with my time. I'm just gonna take a few minutes out of my day to be more present with the people who I don't, don't normally make time with. For a certain coworker, for the barista at the coffee shop, a parent whose kids go to school with yours, a friend who you haven't heard from, so you set aside some time to give them a text or a call. That is being generous with your time. And if you start there, it will take place elsewhere. Maybe for some of you, it's just actually to be generous with your encouragement. That actually, you realise that what I want to do is I want to be someone who, when I see other people in my life, I want to encourage them into all that God has for them. In fact, instead of thinking about how I can be critical, I'm going to think about how I can be encouraging. And you just make that small, subtle shift, but that generosity of encouragement will eventually become generosity of time, will eventually become generosity of finances, will eventually become generosity in every area of your life. See, it may be that you just start to build a generosity account in your banking setup. You know, nothing big, five bucks a week might be all you have, but you let it build up with the intention to be generous. Even just that small deliberate habit is building generosity in your life. That's all it takes because generosity um, generates generosity. And the truth is there's so many ways for each of us to be generous, but you just need to start with one of them because you'll be stepping into your purpose You'll be practising generosity and it will drive you to be more generous as you get that sense of joy, excitement and purpose that comes from giving. And the truth is we here are a generous church because we serve a generous God and we benefit from the generosity of others. I've uh, spoken here at Ormo a few times that every time I come here at the moment, it feels like there's something new happening. The last time I was here was the first time that this set up was going on. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. And I heard all about the generous amount of time and energy and gifts that were given for that to happen. Now I'm here today, you know, just a couple of months later and all of a sudden you guys have got a stage and you've got people back here and you've got this big screen, all these things happening. And that's happened because of the generosity of people with their time, their finances, their encouragement, all of these other things. We are the beneficiaries of generosity. And we're a generous church and we've seen God do incredible things. You know, not just here at Ormo, but all around the place. Like in the last 18 months, we've gone from a church of two campuses to five campuses through the generous giving of people's time, of people's gifts, of people's money, of people's encouragement, of people's prayers. You know, all of these generous things have contributed to these things happening. I mean, just recently we even celebrated Thanksgiving Day a day where we come together as a church and generously give in preparation to be able to bless those in need for a whole 12 months. We're a generous church and we're gonna continue to be a generous church because that is our purpose. We are designed to be a blessing to other people, to generously give people the opportunity to hear about the good news of Jesus, to generously care for those in need, to generously pray for people who are doing it tough, to be people who generously encourage those in our lives, to be people who generously give our time to help people who are finding things difficult, to use our gifts and talents to bless other people in whatever way that looks like for us. We are called to be generous people. And it starts by us choosing to be generous as individuals, but then coming together as a collective group called the church and being a generous church that's able to fulfil its purpose by being rich towards God and being generous towards others. And so what I wanna do as we finish up is I actually just wanna create an opportunity for us to think really small and really simply. Because I believe that even right now, there's people in this room who I know are incredibly generous, but God loves to increase our generosity. 
because God is a generous God and He is abundantly generous to us. Now, this isn't about finances. This isn't about money. I wanna make that really clear. What I wanna do is I wanna create an opportunity for you to think, who, what, and how can I be generous this week? And I want you to just think small. Like, could it be that I just need to be really generous to my husband, my wife, to my friend who's doing it tough at the moment, who's finding life a little bit difficult? Do I just need to be generous with my time with them this week? You know, it could be something just as simple as actually, do I need to be generous with my encouragement? Actually, could I encourage the teacher of my kids or could I encourage my uni lecturer who has been doing such a great job getting around me and helping me? And then maybe think about the finances thing. Think like, is there something that I could give to someone? Is there something that I know someone needs? Whether it's a meal, whether it's, you know, just some shopping, whether it's, you know, just the lend of your car, you know, like just think, is there something that I can do this week to be generous to someone else? Because if you just start taking that one step this week, it'll be easier the next week and the generosity will continue to grow in your life. So would you just join me as we just close our eyes and bow our heads and just come before God? And we're just gonna ask Him, God, who can I be generous to? What could I be generous with? How can I be generous this week? And I don't want you to necessarily think too big. If God places that on your heart, great, go for it. But let's just think small, just one small way that we can be generous. Just spend some time right now just asking God, God, how can I be generous this week? Heavenly Father, I just wanna pray for these people in this room right now, Lord. I wanna thank You for the fact that You have been so generous to us. But Lord, I pray that as we've been stopping and thinking and asking You, Lord, how can we be generous this week? Lord, I pray that You would just uh, make it really clear to us. Lord, I pray that You would present opportunities to us. Lord, I pray that You would give us people that we would know by name, that we could just go and be generous to them. And Lord, I pray that as we take this first step to, uh, in this week, to just continue to build generosity in our life. Lord, I pray that we would understand the joy uh, and excitement and purpose that there is in generosity. And Lord, I pray that that would spur us on to be people who are increasingly generous in our lives, that we wouldn't let greed come in and sneak into our lives and take our perspective and our focus off You and off this life and the next, but instead that we would choose generosity, that we would live in our purpose, that we would keep our focus on this life and the next life. And just pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, um, we're going to stand and sing together just as we reflect on who God is and just sing this song that I really love because it, it has this kind of focus that says, you know, like, God, I want to be sent out by You. I want to be used by You. I want to, I want to um, burn for You. You know, like, I want to just, I always love this saying, there was this preacher who said, you know, if you're preaching, you should just light yourself on fire and get people to come, you know, like just let the passion flow out of you. And I think that's kind of what we're saying here. Actually, God, I just wanna be filled with your passion so that I can go and generously give it to others. So we're just gonna sing that song together, but I would love it if you would just stand now, sing this song and reflect on what God has done for you and how you can be generous in the coming weeks. Let's do that together. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and everybody who walks through our doors is welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au to find out more.